If you have your Bibles, you can get those open to uh, Acts chapter 18. I'm going to be back in Acts this morning. There is a little outline in the seat pocket in front of you. Um, it's entitled Team Players. And also you can go online at tacreading.info. You can take your notes there digitally and then uh, email them back to yourself if you want to follow along that way as well. So I'm probably going to make some enemies here this morning. Not a good way to start a sermon, I know, but, you know, just don't know how else to do this. But um, how many of you like golf? Yeah, there's somebody. That, okay, he said enemies. I'm going to kind of go golf. <laughs> how many of you like bowling? Uh, and I should rephrase some of this, too. How many of you like to watch golf and bowling? Yeah, some of the, okay, there's a few less hands here with that. Okay. Uh, how many of you like to watch or play tennis? Yeah, okay. I don't. <laughs> and I never really knew why I didn't like to watch this, these kind of things. Because, see, I like to watch football. I like to watch baseball. I like to watch basketball. And soccer's okay, too. You notice there's not a Seahawks team up there. Where did I see? I saw Craig and Barb here somewhere. Where did I see you? There you are. Over here. Yeah, you guys get to represent Sean. So, yeah, I'm sorry. You know. But I, I, I couldn't figure out, you know, why, why do I like to watch these sports and not these other ones? And it dawned on me. See, baseball and football and basketball and soccer, they're team sports. It, it requires more than just one person to do this. When you're watching golf, it's one guy, pretty much unless you're talking the Ryder Cup or something like that. But it's, it's one guy, and yeah, he's got his caddy kind of helping him say, you might want to use this club, whatever. But he's hitting a ball, and he's, he's in competition against, or she is in competition against a whole bunch of other people. And it's just individual accomplishment. It's not a team sport, as I understand it. It's the same thing with tennis. It's generally not a team sport. It's one person hitting a ball over a net against another person. They're trying to outdo each other. You get the point, right? Whereas in football, you got 11 guys that are trying to get a ball down the field 100 yards into an end zone. You got another 11 guys who are trying to keep them from doing that, right? And they all got to work together and do their assignments to do it. Same thing with soccer. Soccer's amazing. I never understood that game for the longest time. You played soccer for a while, didn't you? That explains a lot, by the way. <laughs> My kids did, too, so, you know. But you know, that, how they pass the ball clear across the field like that and know where people are going to be on the field and that this is all strategy and practice and things. They got this all down. They know what they're doing. It's just incredible to watch this. Well, there's another team sport that I think that, that I actually did in high school, and I was pretty good at it in, in the particular uh, event that I was in, and that was track and field. Track and field is kind of a combination of a team sport and an individual sport. In, in the sense that you have individual events in track and field. My event was a long jump, okay? I was a skinny 127 pound guy. You can stop laughing. <laughs> I did gain some weight over time. There you are, I've been looking for you. You're sitting over here now, okay. Don't confuse skinny guy with Sonny Rose, okay? So it's always the long jump, right? And, and I, I, you know, I, would, I had the long jump. My, my record was 22 feet 2 inches. That's what I could jump. I'm lucky if I can jump 10 feet today, okay? But that, that, that's what I could do. And, and, and that, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't throw a shot put very well. I could throw it about from me to Todd, maybe, 
but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't throw it very far. See, and, and the way track and field works is you had your individual event that you did and you excelled at, and if you placed first, second, or third, your team, in our case our high school, would get so many points for that placement. And then they would take everybody's points in their individual events, and, and the team that had the most points at the end of the meet won the meet, right? So everybody had to do their, their individual event well, and they had to work together at it. And you had to practice. You had to, be, you had to train. You had to be disciplined at it. And, and you had to realize that it was not only about your particular uh, event, but it was also about everybody else's event. So you were encouraging them to do well, and whether it was the 100-yard dash, or whether it was the 440, or whether it was the high hurdles, or the pole vault. You had your event, and you tried to do the best you could. But you did it for the team. And you knew you were doing it for the team. You didn't take a shot putter. Because usually these guys, like bench pressed like 300, we had one guy that bench pressed 300 pounds in high school. And he weighed about 280 pounds, okay? Big kid. You don't put him in the 100 yard dash. Now, he can run 100 yards. It might take him a week, but he can run 100 yards. You don't take the long jumper and have him throw the shot put and think you're going to get the maximum effort. It's not going to happen. Yeah, I could throw the shot put, but it's only going to go a few feet. You put people with their giftedness, their talent, and their abilities, and, and, and what, they're, what they're trained for in those roles for their maximum effectiveness for the good of the team. That's what God designed the body of Christ like. Each one has an event. Each one of you has an event that God has specifically designed for you to, to be involved in for the good of the team. For the good of reaching the loss for Christ. And only you can do that event to the best of your ability. That's what being a team player is about. And a team player in the economy of God. It's not about you only. It's about the body. It's about Christ and his kingdom and his church. He's building his kingdom. We just sang that song. He's building his kingdom, and he wants to use us to do that. Just like track is a team sport with individual events, so it is the body of Christ. In our passage this morning in Acts chapter 18, we are going to visit Paul and see that some people who were team players came alongside to help him in the ministry that God had called him to in Asia Minor. And we're going to see that there were some people that could only accomplish some tasks that Paul, for whatever reason, could not do. That God had chosen to not work through Paul in some areas. He chose to work through some other people. And through that, we can learn that it's not about the pastor. It's not about the elders. It's about us. It's about what God wants to do through us. And so let me set this scene with you in a little bit. In Acts chapter 16 and 17, Paul had started his missionary journey. And you remember when he was in Philippi, some things happened to him that wasn't very good. And what, they, he and Silas got beat, they got thrown into prison. Um, that wasn't a very good experience. And then there was a, an earthquake, jail's doors opened, the jailer was going to get ready to kill himself. Paul said, don't do that, we're all here. The jailer then takes him all to his house, and he, he and his household come to Christ because of Paul and Silas' testimony to them. They leave Philippi, and we read in Acts 17, we see where they are going on in their journey. They come to Thessalonica. Paul begins to share in the synagogue there, not real receptive. He begins to share with the Gentiles there, 
there's some, there's some receptivity, there's some conversion. Excuse me. But some people were unhappy about that. And so the Jews stirred up the crowds. So much so that they drove Paul out of town. So he and Silas went on. They go to Berea. Berea was a place that was receptive to the gospel. That we read in Acts 17 about the Bereans being noble, how they searched the scriptures to see if the things were true that was, that was being preached. And, and there were many people responding to that. But again, this same group that was in Thessalonica didn't like that. They followed them to Berea, and they stirred up the crowds in the marketplace, the gang members, and they drove Paul and Silas out of town again. Actually, they drove Paul out of town again. But it tells us that Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Paul goes on to Athens alone. He's going to go to Athens. He's going to wait for Silas and Timothy to catch up to him there. While he is there in Athens, he shares about Christ. But it tells us there that he had few converts in Athens. Now, he argued well the cause and case for Christ. But there were few people that responded to it. And then Paul has to leave Athens. And this is where we pick up our story in Acts 18. Paul goes to Corinth from Athens. He can't wait for, for Timothy and Silas to catch him in Athens, so he goes on to Corinth. I want you to understand something about this city that he's going to. Up until this point, the cities that Paul had been in had been relatively small in population. He's going from cities that were maybe 100,000 people or less to a city of over 600,000 people. Men, a majority of those were slaves. He's going to a huge city with... It was the center of a lot of trade because they had ports on both sides of the little isthmus that it was on. And, and, and ships would come into both ports and, and goods would be moved over this short isthmus and land between ports so they'd go between the two seas without going clear around. It was a 200-mile journey around the peninsula as opposed to, I think it was a, a four- to five-mile trip across land. And Paul is going into this city that was also well-known for its immorality. It was well known for its immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes to the Corinthians that he came to them, and he's referring to this time in Acts 18 when he first comes to them. He came to them with much fear and weakness, with trembling. Now, was it because he had gone through the beatings and he'd been driven out of the various cities, that's Nica and Berea and Athens, was it because he was a little bit fearful of the audience he was going to be encountering when he got into Corinth? I mean, let's face it. If you're going into a city, 600,000 people, and it's largely um, uh, immoral, the gospel of Christ is not favorable to immorality, right? It's countercultural to immorality. The gospel of Christ is these things are wrong, these behaviors are wrong, you are not to do that. And so maybe Paul had some fear and trembling because of this. We, we, don't, we don't really know. But we know that he was a little bit, most likely, depressed, for lack of a better word. Things hadn't been working out well. He knew God was still in control. But some things were still not quite going the way he thought. And so he, he must have been down a little bit. And that's where we pick it up here in this passage. Verse 18, verses 1 through 4. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, 
who had recently become, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul meets in Corinth the first team players, and it's Aquila and Priscilla. Who were these people? They were a husband and wife team. This is one of the first times that a woman is mentioned in ministry. Pastor Sean just preached the last two messages about, uh, from 1 Corinthians about the role of, of women in the church, ministry. This is radical stuff here for Luke to be recording a woman's name in ministry. You, you didn't do that. This is not the first time a woman's name is recorded in Scripture. We see in the genealogies of Jesus Christ, we see women mentioned. That was not normal. We see Jesus having an encounter with a woman at the well. You didn't write about those kind of things then. But the Holy Spirit did. And so here we, we have a woman mentioned. This is, this is a radical thing. Everywhere that we see Aquila and Priscilla, they're always mentioned together. They're never mentioned apart. They're a husband and wife team ministering together. They appear in Scripture six times, and half the time Aquila's mentioned first, half the time Priscilla's mentioned first. You read through the commentaries, and some people make a, an issue out of saying, well, the reason that Priscilla's mentioned first is because she was probably a better person than Aquila, this and that. She was more, you know... Um, she was more able to share her faith, whatever it is. I think it was simply this. I think it's just whatever struck him at the time to write who was going to go first. I mean, if you say Bob and Sherry are sharing Bob, does that mean Sherry is better than me? Don't answer that. <laughs> I'm going to start saying Jill and Sonny. I love you, man. I don't know why, but I do. But, you know, I think it, 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 there's the, the evidence for one or the other, it doesn't seem to be there. It's just how it appeared. They were a team. One wasn't better than the other. They, they were a team together. They had different gifts and abilities. They used them together. They were tent makers. That was their trade. That was the same trade that Paul had. So he had something in common. So he seeks them out. That, that's a bridge right there. They are apparently hospitable. They opened their home to Paul. They opened their home on several occasions. We read in other places in the scripture where they had opened their home to start a church. They did it in Ephesus and they did it in Rome. They opened their home up. They were wanting to further the cause of the gospel of Christ. It's what we can tell, they were Christians. They, they, they had to leave Rome because Claudius made an edict back in around 50 A.D., the Jews were stirring up trouble in Rome. And there was an argument that was going on between the Orthodox Jews and the Christian Jews. They were arguing about Christ. And Claudius had had enough. He basically said, get out of town. I'm done with you people. All you Jews got to leave town. So they did. And Priscilla and Aquila headed for Corinth. Probably because of its population and the business and things. Maybe they had some idea of trying to minister there. We don't know. But we know that's where they ended up. They were probably unschooled as well. And it's important to remember that. A little bit later, they're going to have an encounter with somebody who was very much schooled. 
and it comes into play. What does Paul have to say about these people? He says in Romans 16.3 that Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives for him. What's he talking about? If you turn a couple pages over in Acts and go to Acts chapter 19, it talks about a riot in Ephesus. And Priscilla and Aquila went in Ephesus at this time, and Paul comes back to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and it causes a disturbance, and, and there's a riot, and Paul's life is in jeopardy, and Priscilla and Aquila intervene, and Paul is rescued from harm. So they risked their lives to do that. As I said, they opened their home on several occasions. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 tells us about the church that meets in their home. And then he also, Paul, leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. Look at this passage here. This is verses 18 through 22 of chapter 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Chantry because of the vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, and Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. I point this out to you here because here Paul, he's leaving Corinth, he's taking Priscilla and Aquila with him to Ephesus. The believers in Ephesus want him to stay. He can't. He doesn't want to. And he has confidence in his team players of Priscilla and Aquila to leave him there. To do the job that needs to be done in Ephesus. He trusts them. He trusts that they're God's people. He trusts that the Holy Spirit is going to work through them just as he could work through him. Paul realizes he can't do it all. He needs to go on. He needs to leave them. And so Priscilla and Aquila stay on at Ephesus. We see that as Paul meets up with Priscilla and Aquila, he appears to begin to be re-energized. He begins to, uh, appears to begin to, to recapture that, that fire in, in Corinth to preach. Uh, he's, he's making tents with them during the week, and then in the weekends he's preaching the gospel. And we see that take another step up, when he meets his second team players revealed to us in verse 5 of chapter 18. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. His second team players were Silas and Timothy. Remember I, sh I shared with you at the end of Acts 17, he has left Silas and Timothy in Berea while he went on to Athens. He was going to wait for them there, but then he had to leave Athens before they could get there, so he goes on to Corinth. Finally, Silas and Timothy catch up to him in Corinth. And they bring him a report and a gift. We know the report that he brought him because it's recorded for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. Here's what it says. But Timothy has just now come to us from you, and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, because of, uh, therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. 
How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul was driven out of Thessalonica. He goes to Berea. He's driven out of there. I mean, his track record isn't so good. A little later on, Timothy comes along and says, Hey, this is what's happening to the Thessalonians you just were at. This is what God is doing there. That had to be an incredible shot in the arm for him. It had to be something that, that it tremendously encouraged him. It, it obviously, it, it, their coming, Silas and Timothy's coming, obviously freed Paul up because it says he was able to preach exclusively throughout the week. He didn't have to make the, the tents anymore. Even though Paul couldn't stay in Thessalonica, Timothy and Silas were able to continue a work that was started there because they were team players with Paul. That's what the Holy Spirit had in mind. He was going to use somebody else to carry on that work, and it happened. The other thing that we know is that a gift came with Timothy and Silas. Philippians 4, verse 15, tells us about the gift that the Philippians had sent to Paul during his time in Corinth. And it was here, this gift was probably enough to also support him so that he didn't have to, to uh, engage in the tent making during this time. Paul writes in, in, in scripture about how it is right and proper for those who preach the gospel to make their living from the gospel. But Paul also says that he chose not to exercise that right because he did not want to be, number one, a burden. But number two, he also didn't want to be associated with the people of the day who were preaching the gospel from false motives. They were doing it just to get money. They, they didn't care about people's salvation. They didn't care about people really having a relationship with Jesus. What they cared about was the almighty dollar. And Paul did not want to be associated with that. And so he chose to be bivocational. He chose to make tents and preach the gospel when he could. He chose to not be that burden so that he would not be associated with that kind of person who would take advantage of people. So Timothy and Silas were the second team players Paul encounters. He encounters the third team player, and that's the Lord. Now, I know it sounds a little bit funny because like we're on the Lord's team, and he's, he's the leader of the team, but, but the Lord reveals himself to Paul here. Paul's in this city of 600,000 people, rampant with immorality, and probably a little, a little bit, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, fearful, a little, little bit cautious and whatnot, and then... The Lord speaks to Paul and says this. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. The Lord gives Paul a shot in the arm by telling him, hey, Nothing's going to harm you. Nothing's going to overtake you. I got a lot of people here. You've got a ministry ahead of you here. You can trust this. No sooner than he has that vision. Now, God didn't promise him that trouble wasn't going to come. He just said it wasn't going to affect him per se physically. But no sooner than he has that vision a little bit later, after the vision, there's a problem. After some time preaching, we read in Acts 18, that the Jews began to stir up trouble once again. 
And Paul must have been going, oh man, here we go again. You know, you get that feeling when you've been there before and things are starting to happen again and you've got, hey, we're going to go through this again. Okay, you kind of bear down and wait for it, you know. And maybe Paul was kind of doing that. He's, here it goes again, they're going to do this. And so the Jews dragged Paul and a few others before the proconsul, whose name is Galileo. And Galileo was the ruler of, of, of the province that Corinth was in. And the Jews shared their case for him. They basically said, Paul is teaching a religion that is against the law. And they tried to put one over on Galileo, telling him that it was a religion that was against Roman law. And just as Paul gets ready to share his defense, Galileo stops him and he says to the Jews, you guys are full of it. This is not what the issue is. The issue is not that Paul is doing something illegal according to Roman law. The issue is, is that he is saying something different about your internal beliefs about who the Messiah is. You need to solve that yourselves. So get out of here. He literally says, the, the language is such, get out of my face. Get away from here. And he drives them out. And so they have to go settle it themselves. And so the Jews that were there were not very happy about how that case ended. So they do what every good Jew would do. They beat the ruler of the synagogue. Don't do that to your pastor, please. But what's interesting about this ruling that Galileo makes for the next 10 years, it becomes case law that is often cited for the gospel to be preached in Asia Minor. When the Jews would begin to raise an objection about the gospel of Christ being preached in Asia Minor, the authorities would cite this ruling by Galileo for the next 10 years of saying, no, this is not against Roman law. Here's the case law that says it. Leave it alone. It's kind of like in football. This might be a stretch, but I'm going to go here. You got a referee. Throws that yellow flag when there's a penalty and says, Personal foul, 15 yards, right? It's like Galileo's the referee. He's calling a pen and saying, no, we got to do it this way. This is the right way to do it. Well, after this, Paul meets his fourth player, which is a guy by the name of Paulos. Take a look with me at verses of chapter 8, verses 24 and following. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained the way to him, to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by the grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in the public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Apollos comes on the scene. And, and, and he, he comes into Ephesus where Priscilla and Aquila are. This is where Paul has left them, right? 
and he begins to share about Jesus. Well, who was this guy? Well, he was a scholar. He was educated in Alexandria, had gone to the university there with one of the most prestigious universities in, in, in Asia Minor and regions of that time. And, and, and he, so he was very learned. It says that, that he handled and knew the scriptures. But he, he didn't have the full story about Jesus. It says that he taught about Jesus accurately as far as he knew, but there were pieces of the story that he didn't have yet. Probably either things about the resurrection of Jesus or if he knew about and was preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, he didn't have the rest of the story about the role and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he wasn't teaching that. But there was something missing in his teaching. And so Priscilla and Aquila, who are tent makers, blue-collar workers, people who probably were unschooled, come up to this scholar, this learned man, and say to him, why don't you come home with us? Let's go have a chat. They didn't do it publicly. They pulled him aside. And they said, hey, um, it, it, it's, this is my paraphrase. It's great what you're teaching here, and that, but you know there's more to the story? Let me tell you about the rest of the story. And what is really cool to me about this is Apollos is humble enough to be taught by two tent makers. See, he was smart enough to know the Holy Spirit works through all kinds of people, not just the learned. He can work through the blue collar. He can work through the white collar. He can work through kids. He can work through, he can work through anybody. For crying out loud, if he can work through a donkey, Balaam's donkey, right? If he, if, if he can talk and work through a donkey to get somebody's attention, he can use me. I almost pointed to somebody else. I'm not doing that. Apollos knew this wasn't about him. He didn't have an ego, apparently. He was humble. He was willing to be taught. He was, he was willing to be a team player. He was willing to learn from two people who had been around a little bit. Even though they may not have the same credentials. They didn't have 20,000 initials after their name. He didn't care. Apollos appears to have to have had an attitude of that of being a lifelong learner. Which simply means this. You know that you haven't learned everything there is to learn yet. There's still a lot of stuff to learn and there's going to continue to be until you die to go home and be with the Lord. But you're going to continue to learn every day of your life. And after he is instructed more with, with Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos wants to go to Corinth. And the brothers encourage him. And they send him off to Corinth where he has a dynamic ministry there. And that's where we read of him in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. Paul talking about Apollos' ministry there. That's where, when we read about where Paul says, one says I'm Apollos and one says I'm Paul and one says I'm Christ. Well, who is Apollos and, and who is Paul? We're servants of Christ. Uh, I, I planted Apollos' water, but God causes the growth. Because see, apparently in the Corinthian church, and if you've been following along Pastor Sean's messages, we've, we've uh, countered this already. There was this division of people who were sitting under Apollos and, and they were so enamored with his, with his preaching and, and, and the things that he was saying that, oh, we follow Paul. Paul's, or, you know, Paulus, rather. Paulus has got it right. And others were saying, oh, no, we, we follow Paul and Paul's got it right. And Paul's saying, hey, wait a minute, we're all on the same team. 
We're all on the same team. I have one role. Apollos has another role. Guess what? You have a role, too. So embrace it. In Titus chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, Paul's writing to Titus, and Titus is overseeing churches on the island of Crete. And he says that Apollos is going to come and help him in that effort. Apollos was a team player. Paul couldn't be everywhere at once. He needed help of, of the Tituses and of, of the Timothys and of the Apollos and of the Priscillas and Aquilas. He knew he couldn't do it alone. And so what does this mean for us? What's our application out of this? Maybe a lot of it's apparent. But just in case it's not, try some of these on for size. The first one is this. The pastor cannot do it all. Not even the elders can do it all. You can have your pastor and your elders and you say, okay, go for it. I'm going to sit back here and watch this. 130 people sitting back and watching six or seven or eight people do all the work. Now, you all know this. That's not how we function here, and I thank God for that. But it's, it is that, that the pastor cannot do all the work. As a matter of fact, there's even a, a story in, in Scripture that accounts for us the history of the Jews where one guy tried to do it all with like around 400,000 people, I think it was. His name was Moses. And Moses was trying to kind of do, well, pretty much everything. And in, in Exodus chapter 18, Jethro, his father-in-law, comes along and sees what he's doing and says, um, this is not good. What you're doing is going to basically burn you out. You're going to be ineffective. You need to appoint people with the giftedness and abilities that they have into these various other roles and let them do it. And you take care of only what you can take care of. In other words, divide it up. Make a team and be a team. Our response of reading this morning on Ephesians 4. It tells us that it was he who gave some to be apostles and, and pastors and teachers and prophets to equip God's people for the work of the ministry. So that we all become more mature and complete, not lacking in anything as what? Each part does its work. That's how God builds his kingdom here. It's through the Holy Spirit's work in each one of our lives, us working together as team players, understanding our assignments, executing our assignments, and doing those events to the best of our ability for the good of the team. You need to, we need to find our niche. We need to be willing to find our niche on God's team. Am I a long jumper? Am I a shot putter? Am I a pole vaulter? Am I a, a, a 3.30 low hurdler? What is it that God has equipped me to do? Am I a teacher? Am I an encourager? Am I one with the gift of hospitality? Am I one to, to just be a good listener? What is it that God has gifted me in to be part of a team? Romans 12, verses 3 through 8 say this. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. 
For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophecy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And you could add to that list. And Paul is saying that whatever it is, do it unto the Lord. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. I think from this passage we can also see that to be a team player, we need to be teachable. Apollos was a teachable. Apollos was teachable. There we go. He was humble enough to know he didn't know it all. There's a lot to learn, folks. The gospel is bigger than you and I can ever embrace and we can ever experience in this lifetime. That should not stop us from continuing to pursue all that God has for us. But we also need to understand that it is bigger than what we think it is. Jesus tells us, as Matthew records for us in Matthew 11, verse 29, says, Come to me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart. Jesus is inviting us to come and learn from him. He gave us his Holy Spirit, he tells us in John 14, to lead us into the truth of scriptures and to reveal these things to us. And so we need to be teachable, continuing to realize as we journey down this life that there's still more to learn. And we need to not look down on each other's niche. Just as Apollos didn't look down on Priscilla and Aquila being tent makers, we need to not look down on each other's giftedness and calling. If your calling is to be hospitable, great. If your calling is, is, is to be service, serve just as Paul talked about in Romans 12. Whatever it is, we need to encourage and cheer on each other, not look down. And again, I thank God that we encourage each other here. I see that happen an awful lot, and I praise the Lord for that. To go with that is in, we need to encourage each other on the team. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 tells us that we need to continue to encourage each other as long as it's still called today. Because we live in a world, frankly, that does not want to encourage us a lot. There's a lot of stuff out there that runs counter to our faith and runs counter to the things that the Holy Spirit is putting on our hearts. And maybe like Paul did sometimes, we get a little, we get a little wore out with that. We need to encourage each other. And when we come together in times like this, we can bring that encouragement to one another. And we can sing our songs and praise and, and, and we can dive into God's word together and we can just spend time just visiting and have encouragement that way. As Caleb and Becky come back up here, let me just close with this. We do a lot of things well here in this body. As I said, I'm, I'm thankful for that. But I also want to give us a caution. And that caution is, I preached a sermon a couple of weeks ago about, out of Philippians, about being content versus being complacent. Okay? And it's very easy to come to a place and look at us and say, oh, we do things so well. We're so good. 
and we become complacent. And we stop pursuing what it is that God has for us. We stop learning. We start thinking we've arrived. Hey, you don't arrive until you're with Jesus. That's when you arrive. Until then, there's lots to learn. There's lots of work to be done. So we need to be content with what God has given us. I am content with you all. But we need to not be complacent and saying, oh, this is good enough for me. I don't, gotta, I don't want to go anywhere else. I don't, wanna, I don't want to learn anything else from what the Holy Spirit has for me. No, we need to keep pushing forward what he has for us and want that. We need to strive to do better with the, with the strength that God gives us. If we want to make an impact in our community and beyond for Jesus, it's going to take more than a few people to do that. It's going to take all of us being part of the team and grasping and embracing our giftedness and using it as God intends for us to use it. The gospel spread through Asia Minor and beyond because of team players, not just because of Paul. We often lose sight of that. We hear these heroes of the faith in Paul and Peter. And you know what? Pay attention to those other names that Paul lists that were the workers alongside him in the faith because there were a lot of them. Because it took more than just those few people. It was a team effort. Old and young alike and everybody in between. So what do you say? You ready to play? <laughs>